Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, it's good to see you all once again. Anybody ever notice how families have a personality about them? Right? Um, Yeah. We had an interesting family in my church growing up. And it was probably really the, the first place I observed that there were different family dynamics. Because you go to church. If you're raised in a Christian home, you go to church before you go to school. And so... You have interactions with different families. I remember that one of the Krauss girls bit me. And I don't know what was going on in that family that they had to be biting. But uh, then uh, we had this other family in our church. And um, even from the time I was a little kid, I thought they were a little bit strange. And it occurred to me maybe just this, just this morning that they thought they were normal. You know what I mean? That everybody thinks they're normal. There's an in, internal perspective on family, and there's an external perspective on family, isn't there? Like, you see it from the outside, and it looks differently, but from inside the walls, a lot of times, it looks normal. And so, um, it occurred to me that they were, they probably thought that they were, they were normal, and that we were, we were strange. And that might have been true. Um, and yet, w- when you're part of a family... Um, you see that each person in the family is a little bit different. Isn't it interesting that people raised in the same family with the same parentage, and I know that it's not exactly the same, but that kids can be so different in their personalities. Isn't that an odd thing and a beautiful thing at the same time? And so I was thinking about my family. There's six of us in my family, and um, I think all of us have some of these tendencies but others excel at them a little bit more. And so uh, my sister Cindy is the friendliest, outgoingest in all of our family. And um, she's the kind of person, I hesitate to say because she might watch this later, but she will ask the question everybody wants to ask but will not do it. (laughs) And so she runs into you at the store, and you want to know something, you just bring Cindy along. (laughs) And she's going to get to the bottom of it and... And I love her for it, but her friendliness has always amazed me because I've always been a little bit shy. But she's the friendliest. Terry, uh, if you know Holly, this is her mom. Uh, Terry is the hardest working and probably the most serious of all of us. That she she was a very very hard working person. Kim is the funniest, and she always has something funny that happens to her, and she can retell that. And uh, Mark is the most assertive. And many of you have met my brother Mark. He's a pastor, and he's the most assertive, and he's he's very good at what he does, and he's a great cheerleader, and he's a great compeller of people, and that comes out in his ministry. I'm the nerdiest of all of the siblings. And then Joe, who's my younger brother, is the most resilient. He's faced some hardship in life, and, and he's he's overcome, and he's put his life on a good foundation. And we're all from the same parents, but... Now that we have some kind of a family of our own, I noticed that those families are a little bit different from each other too. And churches are like that. I don't know if you've thought about this, but churches have, like people, different personalities about them. And, and I want to talk a little bit about this today. I want to call the message our, a Christian 
ambition. We'll read our text in just a moment. But um, churches can be like this, too, that they have different personalities. And this becomes clear when we uh, visit my brother's church in Kansas. They have a little bit different personality than our church has. That's not bad or good. It's just different. And you can see it, too, in the New Testament. I want you to consider three churches, and one of them is the one that we're, we're talking about here when it comes to the Corinthian church, you remember that they had a lot of power. Paul said, you don't, you don't lack any spiritual gift. They have a lot of power, but they struggled with love, right? That's 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. It's, it's sandwiched between two chapters about spiritual gifts. And the whole point of that is that, okay, it's great to have all that spiritual power, but what is it without a driven purpose that's driven by the heart of God, out of love? And so Paul challenges them with that. The Ephesian church had love, but they seemed to lose it, to grow cold. Not, we don't see it in the letter to the Ephesians, but we see it in the, the book of Revelation when, uh, when Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church. He says, this one thing I have against you, you're great at going out and testifying about me. You're great at fighting great spiritual battles, but this one thing I have against you, you've forsaken your first love. Their love for perhaps God or one another had begun to grow cold. And so he addresses them on that. And they have, you can see even between the churches of Asia, different personalities they have. And the Thessalonian church that seemed to get it, and yet they needed to work on it a little more. They had the love factor, as we will read in just a moment. They, they knew something of love, and yet they needed to work on it. They needed to excel at it. And God would call us in those things that we're not good at to improve them. And the things that we, we seem to have grasped and been able to, to, to clamp onto, that we need to grow in those things more and more. Like, we don't get to this terminal level and go, well, I've grown enough in the area of love. We need to continue to grow and be so more and more. And so, like people, uh, personalities, churches have personalities. And like people, personalities will be judged not based on preferences. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking it's one preference against another, but when it comes judgment day, our preferences aren't going to be what's important. You understand? It's going to be what God prefers. How did, how did he say the church should be? What did he say it should be like? What is he calling us as a church to look like? And it won't be whether we've measured up to our own desires, but whether we've measured up to what God says the church should be. Ephesians 4 talks a little bit about that. Um, when I was growing up, we were a Sunday, every Sunday church family. Okay, anybody else? Every Sunday church family? Okay, so we were every Sunday church kind of family. And I remember a few times, um, and because they were so rare, and there was usually something memorable about them. I remember a few times missing church on Sunday. And I want to tell you about those. And then I'll tell you why I'm going to tell you about those. One time, uh, my mom said that she wanted to watch the Indy 500. And I couldn't have been more shocked if she told me that I belonged to the neighbors. <laughs> like, who is this? This is my mom. You want to stay home from church to watch Indy 500? I never heard of such a thing. If I had wanted to stay home from church and watch the Indy 500, she would have said, no, we're going to church. She wanted to. So I remember that. And then one time I had chicken pox, so I got a pass there. And when we were away for vacation, which was very rare, we sometimes didn't go to church. And then um, when, to my delight, my dad said to me, we're staying home from church today to build a treehouse. 
Yeah, that was pretty cool. Maybe one of the reasons I didn't like church as a kid was because so many amazing things happened besides the chicken pox when we stayed home from church. But my point in telling you this is that in all of the time going to church, and I, I could probably figure out how many times that probably was, I don't remember hearing many sermons about church. Okay, I mean, I remember hearing sermons about you should go to church, right? But what the church should be, what it should look like, the importance of it. And I remember the most thing that was focused on was our individual responsibilities. And maybe it's because corporate responsibility doesn't play like individual responsibility. And maybe it's because there are less, com- there are less compelling arguments and, and that it might be why I don't remember them. Maybe they were preached and I just don't remember it. It wasn't as exciting as hearing, you know, hearing of what a bunch of people were supposed to do. But if you talk about my sin and what I need to need to deal with, then you got my attention. I a lot of times thought my pastor was he was looking in our windows and he knew what we were doing because he seemed to hit the nail on the head. But this message today talks about individual responsibility to the church and to the world. And yet it's part of a corporate responsibility too. Responsibility. Now that's a sexy word, isn't it? You know, there's, a, there's this interior responsibility and this exterior responsibility. And you hear responsibility, and we want to check out with that. But Paul is calling people to personal responsibility toward a whole group of people together. Let's read our verse. Maybe it will make a little more sense in light of the verses we read. Now, about your love for one another, verse 9, verse Thessalonians 4, 9. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the family of God throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. And you should work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Okay, so... Here we have uh, two sets of responsibility to two different groups. And so notice, uh, as I talked about before, there's this internal working of a family, and there's internal responsibilities within that system, okay? So I, I hope you'll understand that. In verse 9, it calls the church one another. This is the one another we're talking about. Who's it talking about when he says, love one another? It's talking about love your brother and sister in Christ. Everybody in agreement with that? Like That doesn't seem like some major revelation. But the church is called one another. And so this internal working are the commands that come in the New Testament that are tied to one another. Now, here's an interesting study. If you, if you want to do a word study in the Bible, do a word study on the, words, the word one another. Or those are two words, but one another. Study those if you have a concordance, and you'll find out that many of the commands, many of the workings in the New Testament are related to a one another setup. It requires this framework of another person in order to be obedient to the gospel. Isn't that amazing? So this is one of the things that comes out in Jesus' teaching, that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. There's many of the commands of the New Testament we cannot do in isolation. We have to do those things when we're together with one another. The New Testament knows no such thing as an isolated, unchurched Christian. Come on, and it's true today, too, that we are not, I mean, you can be saved, right? We're not saved by the church. 
But I think ultimately we're called to a church, to the family of God. And so I think in order for us to grow as we should, now, there are special dispensations. If you're, if you're saved and you get somehow transported to a desert island where you're all alone, you can still be saved and go to heaven. You understand that? But that's very rare. So that doesn't happen much. We need to understand that our, our calling is a one another kind of calling. And we, we're in this together, and there's some reasons for that that I'll, I'll talk about in just a moment. But in verse 10, the internal is described as God's family and brothers and sisters. God's family and brothers and sisters. And the verb, verbal command is that we're to love. And the word for love here, interestingly enough, is not agape, right? What is agape usually related to? It's the, the love of God. And sometimes these terms overlap. But this is the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. I don't know if you knew that, but it's important to understand that there is a call for us to love the family of God. Look at verse 10 once again. In fact, you do love all of God's family. Do you see how that's described? That we are described as a family, and this is God's goal for us. We're a family to one another. And he calls them brothers and sisters at the end of verse 10 there. We urge you, brothers and sisters. This is the calling that he's given. So there's a responsibility internally in this passage to one another. Hey, um, you don't live to yourself and you don't die to yourself. Did you know that? And Paul says in Romans 12 that we are members of one another, not just members of the body. We're members of one another and that we have a responsibility towards one another. Okay, that smacks against our American individualism. Okay, and so we're going to have to, if we're going to live this out, this New Testament vision, we're going to have to fight against some of the individualism that's kind of latent, not even latent, but just pervasive in our culture, okay? And especially Alaska. Come on, can we admit that we are especially individualistic here? Like, we're, let's, you know, I'll live my life and you live yours and we all shall be happy. And it's the vision, the secular vision, the secular utopia is that I do my thing and you do yours and we all mind our own business. So that's in here, mind your own business. But we are members one of another. I'm going to come to that in just a moment. All right, so... There's that responsibility, but there's also an external responsibility. If you'll jump down to verse 12, you'll see that there is somebody else that's mentioned in this passage in relationship to our responsibility, and that's outsiders in verse 12. Who are outsiders? Obviously, he's talking about outsiders to the family of God, people who who we hope have just not yet come to a relationship with Christ, but they stand apart from Christ, they stand apart from the family of God, and they're not part of the people of God yet. Okay? So I want to be positive about it. These are people that still could be saved. In fact, it's part of the vision that Paul shares here is that you need to do this in such a way that you win their respect. So there's a concern about the potential of them becoming insiders, part of the family of God, outsiders. And then he uses the term uh, anybody, anybody. And that could be inside or outside the church, but there are responsibilities here. And the thing that I find about family, and if you're part of a family, you know this, because maybe you have a crazy uncle that when he comes to things, you think, oh, Lord, if you're like you're dating somebody and you bring them home and you know Uncle Charlie's coming, that's going to reflect badly on the whole family. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not an uncle, maybe it's an aunt, I don't know. 
But the whole point here is that when one person within the family does something, it affects and reflects upon the whole family. And so we have a responsibility to one another for how in the family of God the church is perceived through our witness. So let's talk about the family of God. In verse 9, he says, um, we have no need to write to you about your uh, love for one another, about the love for one another. We have no need to write to you. But he's going to write to them about it. Okay? So what he's saying is, I don't, we don't need to teach you the basics on this, but we need to encourage you to grow in it. And this is where I would encourage us. I feel that in this church, one of the characteristics, if we have a personality, one of the characteristics of this church, I think, is that it's a very loving church. It's a very welcoming church. It's a, it's a friendly church. We, we love to talk to one another. We sometimes have to get interrupted in those conversations in order to hear a word from the Lord. But that's, that's part of the DNA of this church. But do you think that uh, we have arrived? Or do you think that God has more for us in terms of love? I think he wants to challenge us to do so more and more. Verse 9 says, now about your love for one another. These things are said about love here. I want you to notice three things. First of all, they are taught by God. They are taught by God. This literally is one word that means God taught. In, in terms of your, your love for one another, your Philadelphia, you're God taught. That's wonderful, isn't it, to be God taught on something. The second thing is that they're already demonstrating this love for the family of God. So this practice that Paul is going to encourage them and to encourage us is something that's already being done, but it's, it's being challenged to do so more and more. And then the third thing is, is that they should let it overflow more and more. That's the third thing about this, is that love is, is good and you may excel in it, but there's always room to growth because none of us have achieved the quality yet of love that Jesus himself had. How many would agree to that? But you've not quite arrived there. You've, you're inviting the Holy Spirit to work on you in that area. I hope you know. But I, I, I think that's really important is that we need to grow more and more. He says that they're God-taught. It doesn't mean uh, that it has to be just from one way. When I think of God-taught here, it, it seems to me that maybe what Paul could be saying is that each of them, it's, they, had to, they never had to learn this intellectually. It just was there spiritually. That's what it seems that this could be saying here. But, but I don't think it has to be just that way. You know, like God taught means that they just some, suddenly have a heart to do it. Okay? But I want to suggest to you three ways that God can teach us to love one another. First of all, he teaches us, actually there's four, uh, one is that Jesus gives us the example of what love is through the cross. Come on, if you want to know what love is, didn't Jesus say the night before he was executed on the Roman cross that, that uh, no man has a greater love than this, that they lay down their life for their friend? And then he gives them the visual of what that looks like, personal sacrifice, even to death for the sake of another. He says, this, this is love right here, not that flabby definition that the world gives to love, okay? Uh, love for them is a feeling that you fall in and out of, but love in God's eyes is not a feeling. It's a purpose to do something for somebody's good even when it hurts, right? Okay, so it changes the definition of what love is about. And Jesus exemplified that. He shows us, and so when we learn what love is, we learn it by looking at the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, we need that. We need the sacrifice of Christ. The second thing is that 
Jesus had teaching on love that went along with his words. Love one another as I have loved you. You should also love one another. And no one has greater love than this. They lay down their life for their friends. And then he says, this is my commandment to you, to love one another, right? And he shows them what love is, and he shows them how that's done. But there are actual words that Jesus spoke that needed to be grasped both intellectually and from a heart perspective to bring in that knowledge of love. And so he doesn't, God doesn't just place it in our heart and bypass our brains. He wants the whole person involved in this. Do you, un- you understand what I mean? That, that love is going to involve thinking. I, I can't get into it today, but Romans 12 suggests that part of love is trying to think about what somebody else needs in consideration and doing that. And I'm going to tell you that sometimes that's hard. And sometimes you can get it wrong. But it's the striving to do that, even when it's inconvenient, that you're trying to think about that other person and how will they receive this action that I want to do. You're thinking about what it is, if you were in their shoes, what it is that you would want to have done to you. And so loving in the New Testament way calls us to empathy with one another. It calls us to sympathy with one another so that we feel the passions of another person, their heartache, their pain, their joys, and we enter into that and we try to respond to them in the way that's best for them. And that's a challenge, but it's God's call, and we need to be perfected in it. Okay, and then there is the spirit-enabling power to surrender more and more of ourselves to his nature. So the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This could be that it's love for God or love from God. Okay, so, but there is love that the Holy Spirit, when he comes in, will give us, even if it's in a small seed form, that we need to express, and then that can grow. I'll talk more about that in just a second. But the Holy Spirit can give us love for other people. Has he ever done that? Has he ever kind of turned the light on and given you compassion for other people? I remember when I was a senior, we had this picture that came out of all the students in our class, and and every senior got a, got a copy of that. I remember looking at the pictures and thinking, I think God kind of turned the light on for me and, and showed me how sad many of them were in their eyes. They may have been smiling, but I felt like God dropped compassion in my heart for them. Has he ever done that for you? Like just put compassion in there through the Holy Spirit. He teaches us in that way. And then the fourth way is that God gives us that heart of compassion. He, he goes beyond just... Um, doing something in our heart, he helps us to see something about the situation where we can see a particular need. And so to be God-taught is to take on his concept of love. And so God has shown you, he says, you're doing it, now perfect it. Every gift of God needs to be cultivated. Do you know that? Uh, It usually comes in some kind of seed form, and then when it's expressed, it grows. If you receive faith, you exercise that faith, and that faith grows. Come on, true? Um, love or the gifts of the Spirit, operating the gifts of the Spirit. God may move upon your heart and you might get it right, and the next time you might be like, oh, I got it a little bit wrong this time. As I, you're trying to figure this whole thing out and working in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there, there is a cultivating process that happens as we develop in the gifts God gives us. Love is no different. Okay, when I first started to preach, I preached five minutes. And it was terrible. And now I'm up to an hour. Hooray! The crowd has gone wild. Look at me now. Verse 10, 
you do love the family of God, and we urge you to love them more and more. So in fact, you do love. The church needs to love each other. And though many people believe that faith is a private matter, the Bible says it's not. And so we're in it together. Uh, the world will see or not see Jesus in us depending on how we love, right? What did Jesus say? By this we'll all know that you're my disciples. You'll bear the marks of Jesus if you love each other. And if you don't, it bears the marks of another kingdom, doesn't it? As James tells us, that this wisdom is not from above when there's no love for one another. And so the world will see or not see Jesus, and we are called to one another as God's instrument for growth. Things get in the way of that, don't they? Um, Self, for one, feelings, uh, for another. How does God separate us from infantile selfishness? He puts us in families. You need to share with your brothers and sisters, right? That's that's how we grow in that way. And how does he free us from the gravitational pull of worldliness? He puts us in a community where we grow the culture of heaven among us. And how does he endow us with the knowledge and skills of living in the kingdom? He puts us together. And that's how it happens. And we become more and more like him if we don't sour, if we don't let bitterness grow up between us, if we love one another. He'll grow the culture of heaven right in our midst. But it has to be because we allow it. He says, brothers and sisters, okay? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I've been reading this book. I just finished it called Primal Screams. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. Um, And the subtitle is How the Sexual Revolution Led to Identity Politics. And the author's main premise in this book is that one of the reasons that so many people are struggling to find their identity and struggling with like their, their sexual identity and um, who they are in terms of race and all of that is because they don't find their identities in families anymore because the sexual, sexual revolution has undermined that. And so a lot of families have fallen apart, and it's left a lot of people grasping for knowledge of who they are. Um, I think it could go back even further than that. It's a loss of knowledge of God, but I think the repercussion and ripple effects is that the family has fallen apart. And so... Um, she writes in this book, this is Mary Everstad, she writes in this book that um, families are important for socialization. They, she's talking about the diminishing number of children that families are having and all of that and the disappearance of the middle child and, and how many children are growing up without brothers and sisters and things like that. Okay, so she's talking about that and she says that brothers and sisters are important for socialization. Um, Listen to this. The siblings set, uh, the siblings set and maintain standards. They provide models to emulate and advice to consider. They enact complementary roles in relation to one another, through which both develop and practice social interaction skills, and they serve as confidants and sources of non-judgmental social support in times of emotional stress. Maybe not in all families. Siblings also learn empathy from one another. A Canadian study of uh, 2018 shows, and she, that other part was a quote from a study that was done in 1982, that siblings are part of our developmental growth, whether we knew it or not. And one of the powerful points she makes is that siblings, unlike parents, will usually be with you through your whole lifetime, right? I mean, we expect at some point our parents will pass on, but our siblings, they're kind of co-sojourners with us through all of life, and part of our 
identity comes with that. And I thought that has powerful spiritual implications for us as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we are going down this journey together. And how do we see new Christians grow into mature Christians? They need to become a part of the family of God. And so then we learn what it means to be socialized as Christians, what a Christian looks like. And it's a very important part of who we are. So she mentions also um, the phenomenon of treed cats. How many of us have seen the example of the, the cat going up the tree and then the fireman comes and gets the cat down and the old lady is grateful? You know what I'm talking about? And what they found is there's a couple ladies that did a study on this who are animal experts. They did a study on this, and they found that cats who are taken away from their litter, they didn't have the knowledge of how to get down from trees. But barn cats who lived with their families their whole lives somehow were taught. You see, because you have cats have the, I'm not a cat person, so if you're a cat person, you may know more about this than I do, but their claws allow them to go up. Okay, so that's nature. But nurture is what helps them to come down. Somebody showed them how to do that. They learn it from their parents. And here's another interesting one. You heard of the orcas that hunt sea lions on the coast of Patagonia. There's a family of them that they beach themselves and they break themselves free. And there's only two families in the whole world that do that. And they learned it from their grandma. Isn't that interesting? So they're finding more and more that these kinds of things are happening, that even animals, and I'm not saying that we're just like a superior form of animal. Uh, we are creatures, and we share a nature that's that creaturely, that God created this kind of order that we should learn within biological and spiritual families. And for that to happen, we need to love one another beyond the offense. You, know, you understand? We need to... We need to we need to cling to one another and know that we need one another for this kind of growth. There could be no better time in today's world than uh, for the church to step up and be that. The paradox that we live in is that social media is, we live in this culture that's never been more connected than it is now, and yet we've never been more alone behind our screens The materially better countries of the world are also the most emotionally impoverished for many of its citizens. A lot of the cries of identity politics is a longing for family, and we're, we're competing against radical individualism, but that can't help answer the questions about who we are. I think that comes from the families we find ourselves in, and I want you to know no more important than that is the family of God. Because God of all, he knows who he created us to be. So I wonder today if you would want to kind of rebel against radical individualism, what you might do. So let me mention some things. Join a 242 group. That's a shameless plug right there. Volunteer to be a part of the church. Go to dinner with people from church and share your lives with them. Invite people over for games. I think games are a microcosm of our humanity. Within those games, your personality comes out. Come on. If somebody needs sanctification, you'll see it when they're playing games. <laughs> Share your story. Help someone. Pray for each other. These are all steps that we can take in the direction that, that shakes its fist at radical individualism because we need to love one another. It's a responsibility we have within the body of Christ. I must hurry. 
But how do we love? We practice. We practice self-denial. Practice love actually is an important part of this, is that we sometimes will get it wrong, and then we make corrections, and we do it again. It's practice. That's what practice is about. And then self-denial, we need repentance. We need forgiveness both from other people, and we need to be forgiving ourselves. And I think our capacity needs to be expanded. But, but what Paul seems to be talking about here is not that it's a greater love in terms of more love, but perhaps a more perfect love that he wants them to grow into and that he wants us to grow into. And this is the revelation of God, by the way. This isn't just written to the Thessalonians. This is written to us. Come on, right? Does, is God happy with where we have loved to at this point, or does he want us to do it more and more? And so he's asking us for pure motives. Let me switch quickly to outsiders. There seems to be this, this uh, transition that kind of fades into a talk about outsiders. How do we relate to people outside the church? And the, the thing about this is that this is a new church, and you can see the transition take place in verse 11. Okay, Notice in verse 10, you are loving the family of God. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Okay, You should mind your own business, and you should work with your hands, just as we told you. And then he's going to say, and the response to that will be that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders and you'll not be dependent on anybody. So here's some transition that takes place. Doesn't exactly create a solid, easy to distinguish line here between the insider and the outsider in the family, but there is a transition here. And so when he's talking about outsiders, he wants them to avoid creating a bad reputation. Now, we're living in a different moment in history. In Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church, it's a brand new community. People don't have this long history of bad behavior on the part of the church. So what they need to do is they need to not ruin the reputation of the church, and they need to try to to give the church a good reputation, as much as you can do that in a secular culture. Okay, We have another challenge. There's a long history within the church and current history where the church hasn't been on good behavior. And so we have to not only create a good reputation, but we have to, in some ways, redeem the bad reputation. And so there's an incredible responsibility that falls upon us. It's not on you personally only. It's on the church as a whole. But each person has their part to play in this. And so how do we do that? He says, we urge you to love more and more. And then verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What is an ambition? An ambition is what we aspire to be. So some people aspire to be rich and some famous and some successful in their field and and some want to be well-liked and some want to be funny and you can go on and on. What What's your ambition? Well, the Bible's about ready to tell us what one of our ambitions should be and that's that we should lead a quiet life. Well, I never thought of that. That's not my personality, Pastor. And Well, here's what the Bible has to say about all of this is that we need to lead a quiet life. And this instruction, it comes without a lot of explanation. It just says quiet life or to live quiet, quietly in a quiet way. And that's hard to understand exactly what that is. Should we never talk? How far do we take this? What does it mean? And what is a quiet life? So we have to look at context for this. The word quiet here relates to peacefulness, okay? So we're not about stirring up trouble. We're not about making trouble. We're not about putting our name out there and being boisterous. 
we're about living in a certain way that lifts up the name of Jesus and isn't intentionally, um, what's the right word here? Um, Incorrigible, difficult, you know what I mean? That we just can't be pleased and we're always out there making trouble all the time. Okay, that would be the other side of this. So looking at this, you can see it from context. In Luke 14, 4, um, it talks about the, it uses the same word, and it, it uses it in a way of not being objectionable. Okay, in Luke 23, 56, uh, resting and not striving on the Sabbath. So it has some kind of restfulness about it. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, um, somebody tried to persuade somebody else not to do something, and finally they gave up, and the word says they quieted. And they just decided they weren't going to fight it anymore. Okay, Some, Sometimes we need to rest in that. No further objections. Acts chapter 21, verse 14, to stop trying to convince. When Paul said, I need to go to Jerusalem, and they're like, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And Paul would not be dissuaded. They stopped fighting. They quieted themselves. Okay, It's a, it's a, it's a ceasing of striving. In Judges chapter 3, verse 11, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, it's a peace that follows war. In Jeremiah 46, 27, it's relaxation. In Nehemiah 5, 8, it's refraining from speech. In Job 32, verse 1, it's ceasing from a course of action. And so the thing that we get here is it's a spirit that calmly bears disturbance created by others and yet does not itself create disturbances. Paul doesn't want Christians to be disturbers of the peace. Okay, That's what he's saying. I'm going to there's some things that we have to work out because that's complicated uh, in light of who we have to be in this culture. But that's the, that's the main line of it. Okay? There's a well-known church in the Midwest, a Midwest state, which will remain unnamed. That It's gained national attention by carrying signs that God hates fags. I don't know if you've heard of that before. And can I tell you that we disagree with that behavior, um, and we can di- excuse me can we can disagree with behavior without being hateful about it. Okay, and that's the point that I wanted to make is that of course the Bible teaches that homosexuality is not God's design, but listen, neither is gossip and slander. Come on, it's not God's design. And I would bet that more people's lives have been destroyed by sins of speech than any other sin. Okay? So we need to hear this. God doesn't want us to be out there being belligerent and hateful. Okay? You can stand for truth and do it in a loving way. You can love this, the sinner and hate the sin. And that's, that's God's way. I mean, if that were not the way, Jesus could never have come. He loves us, and we are sinful, in need of a Savior, and He loved us anyway, and He brought us to Himself. We have to cross one of those pesky contextual bridges here that make us feel distant from the writings of the New Testament. And so, uh, here, let's consider applying these verses to our lives. In the Roman uh, Empire, one of the things that was a real problem was civil unrest. One of the things that Rome promised was the the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, that, that one of the things that the Roman Empire promised its citizens was peace. And one of the things that would quickly bring down the heavy fist of the Roman Empire upon you and your city is if there was disturbances. You remember Ephesians in uh, 
in Ephesus in Acts chapter, I think it's 19 or 20 there, that Paul um, Paul was preaching and the the idol makers, they were all having their shops shut down and all of that. And, and suddenly there was this great disturbance that arose and people went to the, the Colosseum there, the amphitheater there, and they shouted for like two hours, great as Diana. And, and the leadership of the town came together and said, folks, we need to cut this out because we don't want it to get back to Rome that this has happened. There's been a riot in this city. So let's calm down and we'll deal with this casually. And that's reflective of most people's attitude. And so Paul here is saying, we don't want to be seen as troublemakers within the empire. Okay? They had no civil rights in, in terms of being troublemakers. You, you had no protection for free speech. Okay? So if somebody was uh, doing wrong there or creating a disturbance, that could be, that could be the end of it for you. And so Paul's eager for Christians not to cause a community disaster in Thessalonica. And so he asked them to aim for a quiet, responsible life. And we have more freedom to express ourselves now under the Bill of Rights. Uh, however, there's something else to consider. And it's the respect of outsiders and it's responsibility. We, we like to tote our freedoms. We don't like to carry our responsibilities. We don't talk about that. But there's responsibility that we have. And so please listen to me closely when there's not a rule against something, okay, as there often isn't, that doesn't mean that we're free to do anything. Okay? Just because there's not a rule, there's still a responsibility about a wise way to act. And so we should ask ourselves, what is our responsibility to God, to, to family, to the church, to the community and the world? And so there are times for civil disobedience. Not everyone will agree what those li- where those lines are, but... We can all agree that obedience to the powers, when they mean disobedience to God, that's a good starting place for where to say, I can't go along with that. Okay? And some good examples of that, I, I, and I think I could show you those exceptions there, is like the midwives of Egypt when they refused to kill the Israelite babies, and the three Hebrews when they refused to bow down, and Daniel when he refused to stop praying. These people, they weren't trying to cause trouble. They were trying to live faithfully. And there are some Christians that in righteous stands want to cause trouble. That's not the point of any of this. The point of this is to do what's right before God. And so we have to ask where those lines are. We are looking for peace, and we're not taking a stand um, where we don't need to. If we make a big deal about everything, who's going to trust our judgment when something really is a big deal? You, you understand what I'm saying there? That there are some. It's like the boy who cried wolf, and... Or the person who like cries because they have hangnail and they're torn up about it. And so then it's hard for you to take them seriously when there is true pain. You know what I'm saying? And so there's, there's this challenge that we have to do what is important and to fight those fights and pick our battles wisely. And uh, to know what it is and wisdom to, to fight for. Verse 11 Let's look at this quickly, and we'll try to go as fast as we can here so we can uh, get on our way. But in verse 11, it says, mind your own business and work with your hands, as we told you. Okay, Mind your, ESV has mind your own affairs. Another way to say this is do what belongs to you to do. You can't do for others what they need to do. You need to do what belongs to you to do. Stay in your lane. Do what your responsibility is to do, and we all have a work to do, and we all have responsibilities. Come on, is that true? 
And so why don't we focus on those things? Even Jesus said in terms of spiritual priorities, your spiritual priority is that you need to take the beam out of your eye and then you can pick the splinter out of somebody else's. Always to take care of your business and then you can help take care of others. That doesn't mean self-sacrifice or setting yourself aside in order to help somebody else. This is talking about in terms of the work that you're called to do. Somebody else's life is not your first priority. Okay? And, and be careful how you understand that. I don't know if I've said that exactly right. But another way to see this, do what belongs to you. And this isn't a dodge of accountability. Like I could see some people saying, oh, I'm going to tell somebody who I don't want in my business, mind your own business. If you're a child, you can't tell your parent, mind their own business, because you are their business. And if you're an employee, you can tell your boss, mind their own business, because you are their business, right? And we have an accountability to one another, too. We can't tell Christians who see uh, an alarm behavior in our lives, say, just mind your own business. That is part of our calling. But there is a time at which to say, hey, you're wrapped way too much in everybody else's affair. You're not taking care of your own. That's a problem. That's what Paul is dealing with here. What is this all about? Okay, so no dodge of accountability. Work with your hands as a principle of doing your work. And uh, he may be saying this for a reason to mention their hands in particular. But what's this all about? Um, He's talking to a people that apparently there's a group in this church that has been idle and disruptive. They're not doing anything. They're not working. They're refusing to work. Instead, they live off the wealth of the wealth of other people, and they're not doing anything profitable with all their free time. You can see it in First Thessalonians five fourteen. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. In Second Thessalonians, he goes into a long paragraph, chapter three, verse six through fifteen. And I'll read a little bit of it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For even when we were there with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Okay, so he's compelling people, be busy and doing something that's profitable. Okay, uh, It wasn't good for the church or its reputation outside of the church to have idle people who were running around in the church and in the community stirring up problems because they weren't busy enough with their own responsibility. That doesn't do anybody any good. It wasn't good for the church or the reputation. Two reasons scholars give for this idleness, um, and they can only speculate. One is cultural, the other is theological. The theological one is that there was a, a thinking that Christ was eagerly expecting to return at any moment, and so why trouble ourselves with work? He could be here at any minute. So they check out, like, I'm not going to work because I'm just going to sit back and wait for Jesus to come. Well, that's not biblical, right? The Bible says that we're to occupy until he comes. We're to be busy doing the master's work. And if we don't, uh, Jesus' parable is enough to show us that if we're not busy, we're going to start getting involved in things we shouldn't be. And that's exactly what happens. So that's one reason. Um, Why go to school? Why do anything of long-term consequence? Jesus is coming back. But that's true. But we don't exactly know when. And he's called us to live until that moment. Amen? Okay. And then the second reason they give is that maybe some of the church had adopted a cultural disdain for manual labor. The thought that work was beneath them. Most manual labor done in the Roman Empire was done by slaves. 
And so they thought if they did that, they would be lowering themselves. That's a secular mindset, and Paul would maybe want to deal with that. I don't know which is which. These are only guesses. Uh, I do know that these are very real things that still happen. When I was in Bible college in the 90s, uh, there was a student who loaded up their car and decided that Jesus is coming back soon. They're not going to take time for studying. They need to get after it. They need to do ministry and get out there and win the world for Jesus. And great motivation. I don't know if there's wisdom in it, though, because you've got to have something to preach and to teach. Right, And you need to know your stuff. And I'm not saying that's the only place you could get it, but it seemed a little bit foolish. And here's the response that I have to that is that it comes with one word. It's Jesus. Listen to this. No one had more important life than him. Every moment was precious. Would you agree? Every moment was filled with divine purpose. Yes? He didn't start his public ministry till he was around 30. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus, who is the most important figure ever to live, doesn't start really doing public ministry till 30. That means all of that time is preparation. What was he doing with his time? Well, he was working. The Bible uses a very general word to describe what Jesus was, a builder, a builder. Okay, It doesn't use a specific word. This word can relate to being a carpenter. It could be somebody who builds houses with stone. It can be somebody who works with wood. It can be somebody who, and this I think is my favorite, who built farming implements. I don't know if you knew this, but Nazareth is on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. And the Jezreel Valley is one of the richest wheat sources in the world. And they would have need constant things built, farming implements built out of wood. And Jesus could have supplied all of that. Okay, So it could be that. It could be the other. I don't care. If you think he was a cabinet maker, that's fine. I wouldn't disagree with you. But the thing that we need to agree upon is that he worked with his hands. And so that answers two things. One is that it wasn't a waste of time because Jesus wasn't going to waste time. Number two, okay, even as he waited the divine purpose to come, he was busy doing something. Number two, it wasn't beneath him. One of our creeds says that he's co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And yet he descends down and he's willing to descend to the place of doing manual labor. It's not beneath him. And so Jesus is the answer to both of these. Okay. There's two reasons that are given for these instructions. Notice in verse 12, I'm coming to a close here. You should mind your own business. You should work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Notice these two things here quickly. People usually respect those who do hard work and do their job well, okay? And if you want to win, uh, it will win you a witness if you do your job well. And I think almost anyone has an advantage over a pastor. If you sit down next to somebody on an airplane and they ask you what you do and you say you're a pastor, they look at you like you've just shown them a gunny sack with doll heads in it. They're like, what in the, oh, that's nice. A lot of times. So whatever you do, own it and do it well for the Lord. And God will give you um, respect from outsiders. We're not compromising our message with our character when we try to win the respect of outsiders. We're considering how our actions might reflect upon Christ and his church, and that's wisdom, I think. And so why is the respect of outsiders important? 
is because we're trying to win them to Jesus. Okay? This isn't us trying to curry favor in some way and be like, look how good we are. No, it's not that. It's us doing the right thing and showing with our reputation or actions that we're respectable. So at work, do your job well and do a work that contributes to society. You know what I mean? Even when uh, the, Jew- the Jewish people went into captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah said, pray for the peace of Babylon. Oh, that sounded almost like uh, insurrection to say something like that. Um, but that's what he calls us to do, is to be contributing in our world so that we can win a witness for Jesus by our good lives. Okay, so they need to know, people outside need to know that we're striving for what's best, even when we disagree at times. Um, because a lot of times there are other reasons for them not believing us. And then he says, so you'll not be dependent upon others. This doesn't mean we should never rely upon one another, help one another. It's not that. This is, okay, as we bear one another's burdens, we also need to, we need to bear our own. Like we have a responsibility to stand on our own two feet. If you're a teenager, your parents want to get you out of the house so they can go to Hawaii. Yes, get you on your feet and live. Fly, bird, be free. That's what they want. Um, so here's the Christian ambition today. To increase in love, to live quietly, not as a nu- nuisance. Okay? That doesn't mean we don't step up and speak up when we need to. We do need to do that. But we're not always being a nuisance. Okay? And by that, when we do have to step up and stand up and speak up, it will be counted as the exception and not the rule. And it will speak louder. Okay, you hear what I'm saying in that? And then work your work. Stay in your lane. Do the thing that God's called you to do. These things affect the family of God and the world. They're responsibilities we have towards each other and towards the world. And we will answer to God for them since it's here in the Bible. Amen. Hey, thanks for your grace and attention. Let's stand together. I just ask you to bow your heads today. Let's ask ourselves some questions. Do you view yourself as part of the family of God? And um, if not, why not? Maybe today the answer is that you never turn to Christ or look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and abandoning and surrendering your life to Him. And if you haven't done that and you feel God speaking to you today, God loves you, and it doesn't matter what our past sins are. He's provided the sacrifice that's sufficient to save. Would you turn to him today and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Stand in need of your help. He will love you. He does love you. He loves you even if you reject him. But his love is not a sentimental kind of love. It's a love that's expressed in action. He died. He gave himself for you, and he rose again the third day. And so he's not only a great sacrifice, he's a great, he can be a great friend and a great leader. Would you turn to him today and say, be merciful to me, Lord? And if you've already done that, or if you're doing that today, you're part of the family of God. And maybe there's some here that have been hurt in the past by the church, or you've been a part of a hurt, whether it's perceived or real. I would encourage you to forgive to let that go. There's goodness 
in the family of God. When God's truly working among a people, it's great joy. It's great help. It's a community that we can, can sustain us in the darkest of days. And God is in it. That's the most important thing. Let me ask you today, is your love growing? Would you consider today how you would foster that love and put it into practice? And are you contributing to the world in a way that's respectable? This can be simple and complex, I know. But, but let me ask you, are you contributing to a world, the world in a way that's respectable? And how would God have you? And then finally, are you considering how it might matter for you to live as a Christian? Are you thinking about what it does to the rep- reputation of the family of God when we behave a certain way? Or we just thought, who cares? I think God would have us to adopt the attitude that it does matter how we act, how we have responsibilities inside the family and outside the family. And so I'm calling, calling to you today to respond to that. Amen. If you'd like to come and spend a few moments in prayer today, um, these altars are open. We're just going to sing a song because we're already a little bit past our time. But I don't want to leave until we've responded to the Lord in the way that he would have us to. So would you take a few moments to do that before we go? Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.